Greetings and welcome to episode 24 of Beyond Twa Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our question is, who were the Manchus? And when we talk about the Manchus, what we really want to talk about is the state, the empire, that they conquered and ruled over for well over 250 years, the Qing Dynasty, spelled today Q-I-N-G, with the Q representing a C-H sound. Indeed, in the old days, the Qing Dynasty was actually spelled uh, C-H-I-N-G. The Qing Dynasty is probably the most famous of all the Chinese dynasties because it was the last one. This was the dynasty that was in power when the final emperor in a long succession of 2,500 years, or actually 2,000 years of emperors, was forced to abdicate in 1912. The Qing Dynasty is founded in 1644 when Manchu forces an alliance with uh, uh, northern Han armies and eastern Mongol tribes uh, succeeds in conquering Beijing, and the last Ming emperor uh, hangs himself behind the Forbidden City, on a hill behind the Forbidden City. Okay, actually, even though 1644 is the official founding of the dynasty, um, it takes another 100 years, really, for well, another 50 years for the Qing to quell various rebellions that take place chiefly in the south and the southwestern parts of the Han heartland, and then another 50 years beyond that, until 1759, that they succeed in conquering what is today known as Xinjiang, the far nor- northwestern territories, um, western Mongolia, and cultivating a closer relationship with Tibet which many historians refer to as a patron-priest relationship, not really total incorporation into the Qing state. Um, And that's all going to occur by the 1760s. And then you have about another 150 years in which the Qing dynasty will be the state that is in power when the Western... um, Imperialists start to show up on the southern shores of the country, increasingly work their way up, impose their desire for trade, uh, their version of trade, uh, you know, selling opium, getting the Chinese addicted to drugs and whatnot, um, and creating their own trade imbalance in favor of the Europeans. And that will increasingly exacerbate relations until the end of the 19th century when the Qing dynasty, the Manchu rulers, decide they need to reform. And then eventually you have the 1911 revolution. Okay. Um, Now, in talking about the Qing dynasty, I need to first review a couple of the points where if you've been paying attention to various episodes prior to this one, some of this will be familiar territory to you. Um, But regardless, when we talk about the Manchus forming the final really the most successful and largest and long-lived of all empires in all of East Asian history, Okay, we need to talk about the precedent of alien rule in China. And alien, by alien, I, I, I want to put alien in quotation marks, okay, because there's nothing alien about northern nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples coming in and conquering the agricultural Han heartland to the south. It has been going on for 2,000 years, and in fact, if you were to compile a chart, Of all the 80 to 90 or so major states that have ever existed in East Asia, you would find that about half of them um, were either founded by or very closely associated in alliance with northern nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples. And whenever you get the largest empires in Chinese history the ones that incorporate the non-Han borderlands, parts of Mongolia, the deserts to the northwest, parts of Tibet and whatnot, whenever you get a state that's that large, um, invariably it is a, what we called a northern hybrid state. 
um, in which you have northern nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples allying together with northern Han peoples, sometimes with other nomadic peoples, and coming in and conquering the southern agricultural heartland together, and then expanding out to conquer Central Asia and whatnot. Okay, um, you know, Han states are usually what we called southern agricultural states, and they're based mostly in the south, the Yangtze River Delta. Okay, so whenever you have one of these large states, usually nomads are involved somehow. And the Manchus are the most successful and stable of them because unlike the Mongols, who technically conquered more territory, the Manchu dynasty actually lasts for over 250 years. Uh, I think it's officially, it might be 268 years, I think it is, in which the Mongol dynasty, however, the Yuan dynasty, doesn't even last one century. Okay, so not nearly as stable and successful, even though technically they conquered more territory. Now, as for the precedent of so-called quote-unquote alien rule in China, cast your mind back and recall that the major cultural ethnic distinction in Chinese history was between civilized and barbarian, okay, with regard to cultures, with you know, large groups of people who define themselves as we're members of this group and you're members of that group, and culture is what separates us, the distinction was between civilized and barbarian. Now, in other contexts, if you're just talking about um, within a single society, you would have other types of distinctions. If you're talking about economic or social distinctions, you would have a distinction between ruler and ruled, those who were in power, who were literate, who were landlords, who worked together with the government, were considered to be rulers, and everyone else was a member of the ruled classes and considered inferior as a result. But when we're talking about different cultural communities, the distinction was between civilized and barbarian, and it's the sedentary state, the sedentary peoples, who are creating this distinction. Obviously, uh, the nomads who are being characterized as barbarian by the sedentary states, unless they have an unusual amount of self-loathing, uh, generally do not consider themselves to be barbarians. In fact, they often take great pride in their cultural traditions and their unique distinctiveness from the sedentary peoples, and they themselves will often look down and denigrate sedentary peoples as being trapped in a prison of their own making and whatnot, and it's so much better out on the nomadic step, more freedom, autonomy, all of these sorts of things. We're not slaves of our landlords and our emperors, okay? Regardless, this distinction between civilized and barbarian from either direction was cultural. It was generally not regarded as ethnic. And our term for this was huaxia. Okay, huaxia was what we in English refer to as the Chinese culture sphere. Okay, for most of Chinese history, when what the, the people that we now identify as Chinese did not think of themselves as Han or Chinese. They thought of themselves as culturally Hua Xia. Right, and Hua Xia did not equal Han. In fact, if you remember one of our earlier episodes, Who Were the Han? Who spelled with an H-U? It was the non-Han nomadic conquerors from the north who institutionalized and basically invented the idea of the Han people. And the meaning of that of the Han people shifted and changed over the centuries. Okay? But the most durable term that was used to describe what we think of as Chinese civilization, reading the Chinese script, adhering to Chinese rites, living in sedentary cities, making a living by farming, taxing the people, and then creating Chinese architecture and, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
Okay, that was thought of as Huaxia culture or Huaxia civilization, and it referred to anyone who mastered the Confucian classics, the literary canon, and the social and political rituals detailed within. Okay, it was not a racial or ethnic uh, term. Anyone could learn to read the Confucian classics. Anyone, Chinese or not, could become literate in classical Chinese texts and read these things, uh, acculturate to the Huaxia culture sphere, start wearing robes and clothes and living a sedentary life, and they would be regarded as members of the Huaxia community. All right? The Confucian philosophers were very clear that you were not damned by your birth. They would say that the children of the barbarians and us, the civilized people, cry the exact same way at birth. Xunzi said this. The great Confucian philosopher Xunzi said this. It says, what makes them different? Upbringing. All right, it was nurture, not nature. And everyone can be nurtured to become a member of the Huaxia community. Now, the political philosophy of the Huaxia culture sphere also supported this idea that Huaxia was a cultural designation, not ethnic. In other words, Chinese was a cultural designation. It was not an ethnic designation. The son of heaven, the emperor, was regarded as the intermediary between heaven and all human beings on earth. In theory, heaven may select any of its constituents to receive what was referred to as Tian Ming, the heavenly mandate. The heavenly mandate could be earned by anyone. And the way you earned it was by demonstrating, accumulating, embodying virtue. In Chinese, de, spelled today D-E, de, virtue, as, as defined in Confucian thought. All right, if you were the most virtuous person, then you received the heavenly mandate. Now, in practice, this is a bunch of bullshit. And whoever wins the battle and kills all of his enemies and spills the most blood then gets on, on top of the pedestal and says, I have the most virtue. Anyone who says otherwise, come challenge me. And, you know, <laughs> and then by default, you've defined yourself as having the most virtue. But there was an elaborate discourse and literary text that surrounded this and built it up. Okay. And the first Manchu emperor, or the, I think it was the, the first Manchu regent for a boy emperor, in 1644, upon taking Beijing, said, we now possess virtue, so we by right rule the Huaxia culture sphere. The empire does not belong to any single person. It belongs to he who cultivates the most virtue. We have that virtue now because we won on the battlefield, and if we weren't the most virtuous contestants, heaven would not have favored us with victory. This heavenly mandate goes back to the Zhou dynasty, you know, 1000 BC. This is the oldest political philosophy concept in Chinese history. Okay, and it, it facilitated rule of the agricultural heartland by anyone. Okay, you didn't have to be Chinese by birth to rule over what we, what we often think of as China. All right, the political philosophy of East Asia basically was molded and adapted to allow, or to, to basically recognize the fact that the rulers of East Asia were going to be uh, very diverse in cultural and ethnic backgrounds 
and therefore there was no racial prerequisites for who could become the ruler. There were only cultural prerequisites, becoming literate, mastering the Confucian classics, and learning how to run a, you know, a Chinese-style literate bureaucracy. Now, the concepts that were created to facilitate so-called alien rule, such as the Manchus, were a reflection of circumstance and geography. Northern China is what we refer to as an exposed zone. All right, an exposed zone is a geographical region that is constantly vulnerable to nomadic and semi-nomadic conquerors who, 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 who claim three advantages. Horses, both they have the most number of horses and they have the best quality horses because they raise those horses out on the open air in the steppe. All right, that's far superior than the, the, the type of breeds that can be raised in you know, pre-modern, dirty, nasty cities and stables. They are mobile on the frontier, means you can't destroy their base. They have no base. They can run away. They have no shame in running away. And they will come back and fight you when you're least ready for it and overextend your supply lines. So it's very difficult to ever decisively defeat a nomadic confederation. And then they also act as the middlemen for trade and technology across Eurasia. So they're in a very strategic position. Okay. Now, because northern China is an exposed zone, you will often see, you know, at least 50% of the time, sometimes more, in 2,000 years of, of, of Chinese empires, you'll see northern China ruled by non-Han peoples. Okay, it'll be ruled by the Tabgach, by the Khitan, by the Jurchens, by the Mongols, by the Manchus. Right, it's an irony, if you're, so, if you're accustomed to thinking of China as, you know, filled with Chinese people and ruled by Chinese people, you're in for a very rude awakening. More often than not, and especially in the most successful dynasties, the Tang Dynasty, the Yuan Dynasty, the Manchu Dynasty, the, the, the Qing Dynasty, um, it's nomadic peoples who are sitting on the throne in the imperial capital. Now, because it's so common for northern zone nomadic peoples from present-day Mongolia and Manchuria to conquer northern China, this is why you see efforts to build walls permanent walls. We often think of it as the Great Wall, but that's really misleading. There was no master plan to create a Great Wall, and most of the walls that you visit as a tourist today date to the Ming era, uh, but that's a telling, actually, uh, re 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 revelation. Uh, the Ming Dynasty was the last and greatest of the southern Han agricultural states, and they felt the nomadic threat most acutely to the north. And they were the ones who undertook the greatest, most grandiose wall-building projects. What the wall represents, what the Great Wall represents, is an attempt by southern agricultural Han peoples to create a, a man-made physical barrier that nature did not provide for them. Nature did not provide intimidating, uncrossable mountain ranges or dense jungle foliage that horses can't cross over or massive rivers and bodies of water that necessitate entire fleets to cross. All right, this is in stark contrast to a place like Japan, who, you know, Japan would be classified as a protected zone. Almost impossible to invade in the pre-modern era. You have to have a fleet. You have to cross the water. All right, this is difficult for nomads to do. And as a result, Japan is pretty much never invaded by a military force in the mainland. The Mongols famously tried to invade Japan twice, and whether it was kamikaze winds or not, they failed miserably, even though they were so successful everywhere else. Okay. 
Now, what happens when northern nomads conquer the southern sedentary heartland? You get what we referred to in earlier episodes as a northern hybrid state defined by a dual administration. And the key words here are hybrid and dual. Both of these terms highlight the processes of mixing and segregation. Mixing and segregation. On the one hand, you're going to mix with the subject population to a limited extent. On the other hand, you're going to deliberately segregate different populations, different cultural and ethnic groups from each other on the premise that it is better not to have large groups of people interact with one another and that no one should be assimilating to other people's cultures. It's better to have distinct culture, ethnic groups that don't have large interactions with one another. That was seen as a way to minimize conflict. The goal of a northern hybrid state was to achieve a balance, a mastery of of Confucian socio-political expectations about how to run a state, various political and literary philosophies and norms, okay, um, and to acculturate to Huaxia Chinese norms to a certain degree so that you were seen as someone who had the right to rule over a Huaxia Chinese population. And yet, nonetheless, the rulers of a northern hybrid state, because they are nomads from the northern zone, want to preserve a distinct privileged identity for themselves. They want to remain distinct because they're proud of who they are. All right? They don't want to assimilate. They don't want to lose the customs of their ancestors. They take pride in being Manchus. Okay? We defeated the Chinese. The Manchus would often say the Chinese were effeminate. They're inferior to us by virtue of the fact that they lost in battle. That proves our superiority. We don't want to lose our Manchuness. We want to preserve it. But not only do we want to preserve a distinct Manchu identity from the Han, we also want the Manchus to be privileged. Okay? The exact opposite of of assimilation. We want to uh, make our distinct identity even more pronounced from the subject population and give ourselves institutionalized privileges that will perpetuate themselves over the generations. The Manchus, from a demographic point of view, are outnumbered 250 to 1 in the empire that they create. And pretty much every other previous northern hybrid state the nomadic rulers of those states were probably outnumbered to a similar ratio as well. All right. You, if you want to think of the lineage of northern hybrid states, you have the Tabgach have founded the Northern Way state in the 4th uh, century AD. Then you have the Sui and the Tang dynasties, which are an alliance of Han military families with northern tr- uh, 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 Turkish tribes. The, the Khitan Liao dynasty in the late 10th century, the Jin dynasty in the 11th century, the Mongol Yuan dynasty in, in, in the 13th century. All right? And the Manchus are representing the apogee, the highest uh, uh, um, achievements of any of these northern hybrid states. Okay? And they are looking back to previous states to understand where did previous rulers end up going wrong and losing their identity and assimilating to the subject population. Now, by and large, southern Han agricultural states did not have to deal with the same sort of issues that northern hybrid states had to deal with. What sort of issues did northern hybrid states have to deal with? They're constantly debating what sort of new customs, cultures, and languages to adopt, what to reject, and what to modify. All right, common issues that many of them have to deal with are the civil service exams. 
first really institutionalized under the Song Dynasty, about you know 960 to, 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 to the middle of the 1200s. The Song Dynasty institutionalizes a civil service examination system, one of the greatest achievements of the pre-modern world. You'll see nothing similar to it until the 1800s, when Britain will finally come up with the civil service examination for its uh, civil servants who are going to India. All right, this represents one of the, the first attempts at achieving a true meritocracy anywhere on the world, an anonymous meritocracy. In practice, obviously, the exams favored the wealthy and the privileged, um, and it never filled 100% of all the posts in the imperial bureaucracy. Maybe at most it filled 50%. Nonetheless, it was an achievement for its day. Uh, Northern hybrid states, like the Manchus, have to consider, are, are we going to modify the exams in any way? If, what happens if we don't modify the exams? What happens if we just let the, open, the exams be a complete meritocracy, open up to everyone? Well, they saw what would happen. The Han from the Southern Agricultural Heartland enjoying the most wealth, the most libraries, the most you know, academies, the most private collections, the, the, you know, the, the tr longest tradition of learning and all of this, uh, they're going to dominate the exams. And before you know it, 95% of all the people who pass the civil service examination system will be from the Southern Agricultural Han heartland. And then the Manchus are going to be really outnumbered all around them in the government. It's going to be Southern Han who are dominating, and they don't want that. So one thing that they decided to do was to, make, to, to uh, uh, institute quotas for the exam. We're going to make sure that only a certain number of Han from this province in the South are going to be able to pass this, even if there's, you know, 10 times as many who are qualified and could pass it if it was an open exam. All right, that's one example of an adaptation, an issue that a northern hybrid state has to deal with that you might not necessarily see if it was a southern Han state who, you know, where no nomads, no other ethnic groups were involved. They have to think about clothing, and bodily appearance practices for both men and women. Okay, one of the things that the Manchus will do is they'll say, we're distinct from the Han, and our women are not going to bind their feet. The Han women bind their feet. And they said, we're not going to allow Manchu women to do that. Now, there's an interesting twist here. As time goes on, many Manchu women um, actually want to do as the Chinese women do. They see it as something that, uh, uh, to which a much prestige social status accrues, and it was a form of beauty. And they saw the wealthy elite Han women doing it, and many of the Manchu women tried to start binding their feet, and they were forcibly stopped from doing so. We're Manchus, we don't do that. All right? and, but as for the men, traditionally Manchu men had a certain hairstyle. They would shave the front sort of, you know, the front part of their hair all the way back to uh, the back of their pate, and then they would let this long braided queue, it was called a queue in English, uh, flow down all the way to the small of their back. All right, that was the Manchu hairstyle, the queue. It was a matter of pride for the Manchu men. All right, after they conquer China, the Manchus impose this hairstyle on every single Han man. And they say, you now have to shave your, your hair in the Manchu hairstyle. All right, so when the first Europeans visit China, and you start getting a lot of European missionaries and businessmen and diplomats in the 19th century, and photography is invented, all the earliest images of China are of Chinese men wearing this hairstyle. And you think, oh, well, this is what China, you know, the, 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 this is a Chinese practice, this is a Chinese custom. No, it was a Manchu hairstyle forcibly imposed on Han men. And in the beginning, there was lots of resistance to it. As time goes on, 
many people forgot that this was even something that was imposed by the Manchus. Uh, but in the beginning, there was a lot of resistance. I mean, what? We have to change our hairstyle to look like you? This isn't what we do. But if you didn't sh- uh, shave your head and create a Manchu queue, you could be executed. And when finally the Manchu dynasty was overthrown in 1911, one of the most common acts of defiance was to cut off your queue. That was a risky thing to do, because the dynasty was not overthrown overnight. It's actually a long and protracted war that went on for three or four months. Um, And depending on the fortunes of the battlefield, if you cut off your queue, and then the imperial forces took over your town once again, um, they would immediately be able to identify who was a rebel and who was not based on your hairstyle. And then, you, of course, you would be executed. <laughs> you know, you lost your hair, you're going to lose your head as well. Translation projects. The northern hybrid states, the rulers speak different languages. They speak Manchu, they speak Mongol, they speak Jurchen, they speak Kitan, whatever the case may be. And these languages are very different than Chinese. They're usually classed into the Altaic language family. All right, very, very little to do with Chinese grammatically uh, whatsoever. Chinese is more closely related to Tibetan, the Sino-Tibetan language family. Uh, the Altaic languages are often uh, classed together with uh, tr- the Turkic languages, Japanese and Korean. Very different grammar than Chinese. Okay. To what extent are we going to adopt the Chinese script wholesale? Are we going to translate the Confucian canon into our language, into our script, or are we going to read it in Chinese? Most of them decided that pragmatically they would have to rule the agricultural heartland uh, using the Chinese script because you already had millennia. Uh, you know, many thousands of years of bureaucratic experience, and that was all in Chinese, so they would adopt to that, they would adapt to that. Uh, But there are many other things where they had to make a decision. Are we going to use our own language, or are we going to use Chinese? And you got some interesting compromises. I believe it was the Jurchen, Jin Dynasty, I believe, who actually translated part of the Confucian canon into the Jurchen language. And they had exam... uh, exams that were held in the Jurchen language, testing the Confucian classics. And you're not even reading these things in the Chinese script. You have to decide if you're going to adopt the Chinese calendar. Or you're going to use your own calendar. Are you going to allow marriage between Han and non-Han? Often this is a very touchy subject for many people. Okay. Um, The Manchus also were very sensitive to the fact that they felt that part of their success was due to their masculinity. their, Their manliness. Their ability to go hunting to ride on horseback, and they often attributed, whether it was true or not, they often attributed to the Han Chinese the idea that they were more effeminate than the Manchus. And so the Manchus actually required, the emperors would occasionally rail against any Manchu who could no longer shoot a a bow and arrow from horseback. The Manchus actually had an entire verb that described the act of shooting a bow and arrow from horseback. It was seen as a, a thing of pride that Manchu men should be proficient in this. Uh, they required that you ride a horse if you're going to be coming to an audience with, with the Manchu emperor. All right? the, you know, horseback culture was extremely important to the Manchus, specifically going out and being able to hunt and shoot from horseback. And oftentimes the Manchu emperor would take Mongol and Manchu tribe, uh, uh, tribal elders with him on hunting parties, but he would exclude the Han. Okay, you're not allowed to have representatives. This is our ritual, our thing. We're the manly ones who go out and shoot deer uh, by bow and arrow from horseback. Okay, oftentimes the, the, the solutions to many of these problems were the exact same types of solutions, just with the details being very different. 
Okay, many of the northern hybrid states would institutionalize minority privilege in government, a form of affirmative action. Affirmative action, however, that's not supposed to benefit the poor and downtrodden minority, but the already uh, privileged elites, okay, who nonetheless are a minority who are worried about losing their distinct status. Um, and so you would actually see during the Manchu Qing dynasty, the majority, there, there was always about half of all government positions would be held by Manchus or their close tribal allies, the Eastern Mongols. And there was also another category known as the Han Bannermen. In fact, all the Eastern Mongols, the Manchus, and the Han Bannermen, Han Bannermen being Northern Han, who joined the Manchu and Mongol conquest when it was still in Manchuria, and therefore they were seen as more privileged and uh, different than Southern Han Chinese, uh, they were all given more privileges in the government and the right to bypass the normal route of the civil service examination system to get in through a simple recommendation system or, you know, hereditary status and whatnot. Um, you know, this is a form of maybe we call it reverse affirmative action uh, policies that are designed to institutionalize uh, 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 political privileges, occupational privileges um, for the ruling class and its closely affiliated allies. There would be economic subsidies very often in order to make sure that the Manchus did not assimilate into the Chinese population. Uh, they would often be forced to live in what were known as Manchu garrisons. You'd have a Manchu military army force posted in major cities throughout the realm, uh, but they would not be allowed to live in regular neighborhoods. The Manchus were required to build a walled enclave within each of these individual cities, and they would have to live and you know reside in there. And when they left, they'd have to go through a gate and have a pass and have permission, and people would know where they're going. Uh, you couldn't, you know, just bring in Han women from the outside into the garrison. It was intentionally segregated in a spatial sense throughout the realm that Manchu and Han were different. Okay, now in practice, these were porous borders, and they still mixed. Um, but, you know, in theory at least, they tried to enforce these sorts of borders. Okay. Um, the emperor himself would also adopt multiple faces to appeal to his various constituencies. One of the unique features of a northern hybrid state like the Qing dynasty is that unlike the southern agricultural Han states, they tend to incorporate many more diverse other subject populations than the southern Han states do. Sometimes the southern Han states will conquer some people in the southwest, uh, but they don't, they don't conquer, you know, like, uh, you know, the Mongols or the Uyghurs or Muslim groups or the Tibetans or whatnot. The northern hybrid states do. And in order to appeal to each one of these constituencies differently, they will adopt a different persona, okay, to a Buddhist population. The emperor will portray himself perhaps as one of the reincarnated uh, 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 Buddhas or compassionate bodhisattvas, gods in the, in the Buddhist pantheon. All right, I'm not just the emperor, I'm also one of the Buddhas of the heavenly paradises. In order to appeal to his nomadic constituents who may, maybe are, are, are not Buddhists, maybe they're still animists, he'll adopt the persona of a Khan or a Kagan, the Khan of Khans towards his Chinese subjects and their elite Confucian, uh, 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 elite Confucian upper stratum. He'll portray himself as a traditional kingly Confucian monarch who patronizes Confucian art and literature and the Confucian classics and sponsors recopying projects for Confucian uh, books and literature. 
he'll be he'll portray himself as a patron of the Islamic societies and maybe take a Muslim concubine to the Tibetans. He'll portray himself as the Chakravartin, a Tibetan Lamaist deity, specifically a Tibetan Lamaist deity. Uh, 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 deity. Right, and then, as I said before, in his harem, he's not going to just have one type of woman in his harem. He's going to have a multinational strategic harem that incorporates women from all of the different constituencies of his realm. The Qing emperor in his harem of very, you know several thousand women would have Chinese co- uh, concubines, Turkic concubines, Mongol concubines, all right, Manchu concubines, obviously, all of them. In fact, technically, from like a modern biological perspective of genes, which they didn't know anything about back then, obviously, uh, but technically, <laughs> knowing what we know now, almost every single Manchu Qing emperor wasn't 100% Manchu, <laughs> okay? Every single emperor of the Qing dynasty um, was of mixed blood, okay? To think of it in those terms, they, because they all intermarried with the Han, with the Mongols, Okay, and the children that resulted would have had mixed blood parentage. But see, that's imposing our modern day perspective back in time. All right, at the time, this is the larger point I want to make. It was institutionalized that you were a certain ethnic group. We are all Huaxia to a certain extent, but within Huaxia, we are distinct members of our own communities. And marriage and procreation didn't change that. Okay, it didn't matter that by blood, the Manchu emperors weren't even more than 50% Manchu. They might have been just as much Han as they were Manchu. They institutionalized their identity as a Manchu with all the privileges and expectations that went along with that. And other people saw them as a Manchu. Okay? Remember, cast your mind back again to when I talked about race and ethnicity. Race and ethnicity are situational states of mind. Yes, people's skin colors and bone structure and hair consistency will be different on a continent-by-continent basis. You can easily identify if someone likely came from somewhere in Europe or somewhere in East Asia or somewhere in Africa. Okay? But unless you get into culturally and socially specific details and cues like fashion and language and, you know, institutional privileges like the Manchus had, you can't identify someone any closer than that. Okay, if you put if you take people even today, if you took people from Japan, from Korea, from China, from Mongolia, put them in a police lineup. Strip the clothes off of all of them. Sorry, it's a little indelicate here, but I want to make a point. Everyone's naked. Wash away all the makeup. Give them all a shampoo and comb their hair out in the exact same style so that there's no culturally specific, you know, hairstyles or, or makeup or anything like that. You could not place with any degree of accuracy or consistency. You could not say, oh, she's a Korean. Uh, oh, he's Mongol. You, you, you couldn't do it. Just like... If you took someone from uh, Sweden, from Germany, and from England, you took, you know, 10 people from each country, did the exact same thing, put them in a police lineup, take off all their clothes, hose them down, get rid of all the makeup and hairstyle and clothes and all this sort of stuff, take off the glasses, 
you could not place where they were from. You could generally say probably, uh, you know, definitely Europe and probably Northern Europe, although it's not rare at all to go to Italy and find people who are quite pale and have, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. Not rare at all, especially in Northern Italy. You could probably, maybe with some degree of consistency, say, okay, Northern Europe, maybe. But there's no way in hell you could say, ah, Denmark, Sweden, England. Boom, <laughs> I got it. No, because what we think of as, uh, as ethnicity is so much informed by deliberate cultural and social decisions. Okay, that are superficial and outward in appearance. And so when the Manchus were saying, we're Manchu, regardless of what genetics says, that's what they were. Race was what they said it was. And they inscribed what they said it was into institutions that recognized it and treated you differently based on what race you were said to be. You're Han, so you have to wear your, your hairstyle in this particular demeaning way. And you can only wear these sorts of clothes. I'm Manchu. I live in a Manchu garrison that's spatially separate from you guys. I get a subsidy from the state so that I never have to work in a Chinese city. And whenever I get married, I have to have my, 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 my uh, uh, spousal choice has to be approved by the emperor. Because he's going to make sure it's a suitable match for a Manchu like me. So if you were just to study the Qing dynasty based on Chinese language and Confucian-centric sources, you would probably say, oh, the Manchus are assimilated. But if you look at all the other sources available that are not in Chinese, or all the other cues and indicators that show how the Manchus were treated differently and forced other people to treat them differently, then you realize it's much more complex than that and much more diverse and that the Chinese face, the Confucian face of the Manchus was just one act on the stage of the Qing Empire directed towards one particular constituency and that they had many different faces and ways of interaction and performances, really, political performances, depending on you know, time and place and who they were talking to. And in the end, they insisted, we're Manchu. And they, were, and, and they did that all the way until the 1911 revolution. Okay? In practice, after 100 years, almost no Manchu spoke Manchu language anymore. They all spoke Chinese. But they spoke it with a heavy accent, a, a, a very unique way of speaking Chinese. Most people could tell. In the late 1900s and early 20th century, most people could immediately tell if a Manchu was a Manchu, even if he didn't speak Manchu, he was speaking Chinese, they could tell because he spoke Chinese in a particular way that identified him as Manchu. Just like there's many different ways of speaking English in America. And oftentimes you can identify racial, spatial, you know, uh, economic backgrounds based purely on how the exact same sentence is said by people from different backgrounds. Okay. So even though over 267 years... The Manchus lose their language, essentially. They lose a lot of their customs, and they even adopt different forms of dress, and their women are trying to bind their feet. At the time the 1911 revolution succeeds in overthrowing them, everyone in China, all the Han revolutionaries, knew exactly how to identify a Manchu. They didn't say the Manchus were assimilated, and they had no problem whatsoever in massacring 
and identifying Manchus in every single city where Manchus lived. And in 1911 and 1912, after the revolution broke out, Manchus were immediately and easily identified and targeted for persecution by the Han revolutionaries. No one mistook them for Han and accidentally killed a Han instead of a Manchu. Because their Manchuness was defined by where they lived, how they lived, how they spoke Chinese, how they dressed, what they ate, who they knew, all these sorts of things. It was obvious. And so that's the sort of ethnic diversity that persisted in a northern hybrid state, even if superficially we might say, oh yeah, they were assimilated to a certain degree. Um, Assimilation, oftentimes in this case, was only skin deep. It wasn't all the way through. Now, what were some of the geopolitical consequences of the Manchu ascendancy, the Manchu conquest of all of East Asia and much of Central Asia? All right. The Manchu previous enmeshment involvement in northern zone geopolitics gave the Manchus and really all northern zone nomadic peoples before them a greater awareness of the strategic vulnerabilities outside of the agricultural heartland. Okay, the southern Han agricultural states like the Ming Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, they conquer the agricultural heartland and then they, you know, they dig in and they try to, you know, pray to heaven and build walls and then keep the nomads from entering their state. And if they can just, you know, keep the nomads at a stalemate, they're thrilled. <laughs> That's great. That's success. We've stalemated the, the nomads. The Ming and the Song dynasties, they don't say, hey, let's go out to the frontier, uh, 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 inflict a decisive defeat on the, the Manchus or Mongols, and then march off to the deserts of Central Asia and conquer all of Central Asia. And then, hell, let's go to Tibet too. No! Every once in a while, some crazy emperor does something like that. And it's a huge fiasco. Look up the Battle of Tumu, T-U-M-U, I believe it's 1447. During the Ming Dynasty, and this foolish young emperor, the, the Zhengtong Emperor, decides to set out from Beijing and attack the Mongols on the Mongol steppe. And it's one of the greatest military disasters in the history of China. The emperor himself is captured and held for ransom by the Mongols. What a stupid thing to do. To march an army out onto the steppe when you are not a steppe people yourself? You're going into someone else's element. You're going to overstretch your supply lines. You're going to be attacked from every direction. And when you try to fight the nomads, they're just going to run away. And they have no shame in running away whatsoever. They're going to destroy you. You don't do that. And the southern Han states generally didn't. Except for one or two foolish emperors who tried to do that. They said, let's build walls. <laughs> Those didn't really work well either. All right, you're, you're kind of screwed in the south. The nomads are always a big threat. Now, the nomads themselves, when they conquer the Han heartland, they don't stop there. Because they, they, they came from the steppe. They know exactly how to defeat other nomadic peoples. They know how great of a threat that they are. And they're certain that they can do it, unlike the southern Han states. And so the Qing dynasty, at the same time that they're conquering the southern Han heartland, they're also getting involved in nomadic politics in western Mongolia, and it's and in Central Asia. 
And eventually, the way it goes down is this. You want to know how China got as big as it got today? It has very little to do with the Han people. Well, it has something to do with them. All right, here's how it goes. The Manchus allied with the Eastern Mongol tribes and some Northern Han peoples, military leaders from Manchuria, from Liaodong. All right, they, they embark on a lengthy 50-year conquest of southern and southwestern Han agricultural heartland. All right. In the meantime, their eastern Mongol tribal allies, who are going to be just as privileged as the Manchus in the Qing dynasty, all right, they get attacked by the western Mongols. Mo- Mongolia is not some big, you know, homogenous monolith. The western Mongol tribes are attacking the eastern Mongol tribes. All right. The western Mongol tribes are allied with another Mongol empire called the Jungar state. And so the Manchus say, our our Mongol allies are being attacked by other Mongol tribes. We need to go kill them. And we think we can do it, unlike a Southern Hong agricultural state, because we're one of them. But not only are are we a nomadic people who can kill other nomadic peoples, we now also have access to the Southern Han agricultural heartland and its extensive resources. And so they leverage those resources to put two and two together, both the, the nomadic warriors and the Han resources and infantry and, you know, provisions and cannons and all that stuff. And they set out to Western Mongolia and kicked the crap out of the Western Mongols. And then they got enmeshed in the rest of the Jungar Empire politics, and they took over the Jungar Empire in what is now Northern Xinjiang. Then they got to northern Xinjiang, and they looked down to the south at the Tarim, uh, the, the, uh, Tarim Basin, the Taklamakan Desert, around which there were many oases, today populated by a Muslim people known as the Uyghurs, but they weren't called Uyghurs back then. And they saw that this also was going to be a threat if they didn't neutralize it. And some of the Mongol Jungars fled into the Taklamakan Desert Oasis. They said, well, we better conquer that. And they went in and conquered that, and they took over all Xinjiang. And then some of the, the, uh, the Mongol Jungar leaders then escaped into Tibet. Mongolia and Tibet had a close religious relationship. Tibetan Lamaism was the form of Buddhism that many of the Mongol tribal leaders uh, uh, adhered to. He says, well, we need to march into Lhasa then too, to neutralize this threat. And they did. They didn't really conquer Tibet. They sort of stationed some representatives there and had an ever-present threat that we could conquer Tibet if we wanted to, but that they never actually did it. Most of the time, it was just a very small representative garrison in Lhasa, and then, you know, travel back and forth between the Dalai and the Panchen Lamas to Beijing and back. All right, this patron-priest relationship. This is why there's some dispute today. Uh, you know, is Tibet, was it ever really a part of China or not? Well, I don't know. I mean, it had a loose relationship with the Qing dynasty. Was the Qing dynasty China? Not really. No, <laughs> it wasn't. It was something different that was part of China, included China, but was also something more. Um, but regardless, this is how history works. All right, everything comes out of something that came before it, and what came before it is never a carbon copy of what comes after it. So it's a moot point whether this was China or not. It was the Qing Dynasty. Let's leave it at that. And that's how the Qing Dynasty conquered so much land all of which, except for Mongolia, is a part of China today. Everything, except for the Han sedentary agricultural heartland, from the Yellow River in the north down to Guangzhou and Hong Kong in the south. That is what you know the Ming Dynasty and the Song Dynasty and other Han agricultural states encompassed. Manchuria, Inner and Outer Mongolia, Xinjiang, Tibet, much of the far eastern Tibetan uh, 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 highlands, 
that was a result of the last imperial dynasty being a northern hybrid state. Okay, if the last imperial dynasty was the Ming dynasty, which fell in 1644, let's say, let's move everything up 200 years. If it was the Ming dynasty, China would be much, much smaller today. I can guarantee you that. Now, these outer dependencies are ruled in a totally different way. Okay, there are no Han officials or Han migration allowed into uh, the non-Han frontier borderlands. Okay, it was assumed that because we are from the borderlands, we are from the frontier, the steppe, we know how to rule it better. The Han can, we, we will use the Han officials to rule the Han heartland, uh, but Manchu and Mongol officials will rule the Mongol and the Turkics and Muslims and the Tibetans. Okay, so for all the way up until the 1880s, when this policy eventually changed, uh, the outer dependencies is what they're, is what they're, they were referred to were ruled by Manchu and Mongol officials, all right? And there were no Han officials in high political office. And Han migration was also officially discouraged, even though it happened informally. You can't really stop it. Nonetheless, it was still official policy to keep Han migrants, Han merchants, you know, refugees and whatnot uh, from migrating to the Mongol steppe, to the Muslim oases of the Taklamakan Desert, all of these places, Okay, and on the outer dependencies, the bureaucratic paperwork was usually conducted in Manchu or Mongol script, not in the Chinese script, which is why scholars uh, were not able really to understand the extent of the diversity of the Qing dynasty for so long, because we only read Chinese language documents. And of course, that gave a very Sinocentric view of the Qing empire. It's only in the past 30 years or so that uh, historians have started to read Mongol and Manchu documents and realize that they por portray a very different picture of the diversity of the Qing state and the many different constituencies and modes of rule that it employed. How are these two regions linked together? They were linked together through what was known as Xie Xiang, literally shared funds. Okay, the empire, the Manchus, would take the surplus tax revenue and wealth from the wealthy Han agricultural heartland, places like Jiangnan, and they would use it to pay the, you know, astronomical administrative and military expenses of the distant non-Han frontier. And one of the crises of the Chinese state that will occur in the 20th century is that after the Boxer War, the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 and the Boxer War in 1900-1901, uh, the Qing Dynasty will be forced to pay an enormous indemnity to the foreign powers, um, and they'll have no more money uh, to contribute to the shared funds anymore, and the non-Han borderlands will all of a sudden be totally impoverished and have no means of maintaining their administration in Xinjiang, in Tibet, in Mongolia. And for much of the first half of the 20th century, these regions of China will be in danger of being uh, uh, cut off from the Chinese state uh, because there's no more money to help fund the administration there. There was greater strategic importance, however, attached to these inner Asian dependencies than to the Han heartland. And that's why so much money and effort was uh, uh, pumped into them. Okay. And the, I think it's the 1860s. There is a great debate between two famous Chinese statesmen, Zhou Zongtang and Li Hongzhang, high to, uh, Han statesmen in the Qing dynasty. And they are debating whether or not we need, we should invest in a uh, Eastern coastal Navy uh, on par with the West uh, to combat the British and the, you know, the Japanese and all the people who come by sea? Or should we raise a, a, a traditional infantry army and march into the northwestern deserts and retake, reconquer Xinjiang, which had been uh, wrested away by Central Asian 
uh, armies that had taken it away from the Qing dynasty for a while. And the debate was won by Zhuo Zongtang, who said, no, it's more important to defend the inner Asian frontier than it is to build up our coastal defenses. Now, in hindsight, it seems like a very fateful decision. You're like, oh, no, don't do that, because we, we know what's going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen back then. And 2,000 years of Chinese history taught them that the inner Asian dependencies were far more valuable and strategically important, you know, and the entire health of, and viability and existence of the state depended on securing your inner Asian frontiers than anything that comes from the coast. Major threats had really never really come from the coast. And they had a domino theory. Sort of like, you know, the Cold War domino theory. They had a domino theory. If we lose Xinjiang, then Mongolia will be lost. If we lose Mongolia, then Beijing will be lost. And that's the end of the dynasty. Now, what were the three geopolitical elements of the Qing state? Now, it's a massive entity. All right, the three geopolitical elements of the Qing state, um, you have the central government, you have what is known as the inner provinces, and then you have what I was just referring to as the outer dependencies. Okay, the central government, usually referred to as Zhongyang, so literally the, the center, um, you have a disproportionate number of the uh, Manchu, Mongol, and Han bannermen who had joined the Manchu conquest early, mixed in with Han officials who had passed the civil service examination system, you know, largely based on a meritocracy, probably about 50-50. Okay, between the two, even though the Han who passed the examination system far outnumber the Manchus, Mongols, and Han bannermen from a demographic perspective in the whole empire, nonetheless, in, 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 within the government, it's about 50-50. All right, totally unfair. It's not supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be weighted in favor of the conquerors, the minority conquerors. The government, the central government was divided into what were known as six boards. All right, the board of rights, the board of the censor, these are like departments in, in, in our uh, modern day lexicon. Now, the censor and the rights were the most important. All right, really the rights too were the most important. The rights were the board that dealt with education because education was simply referred to as a study of the rights and the rituals that were contained in the Confucian classics and the literary classics. That's what you studied. That's, that was the key to understanding how all humans should interact with other humans. All right, and that's the basis for government, how government should rule over its subjects, how we should interact with other foreign peoples, barbarians, and whatnot. It's all contained in the rights. That is the prescription for every single human relationship. So education was to study the rights. And the tribute system, which was the pre-modern Chinese you know, foreign relations framework, uh, was also subsumed within the Board of Rights because also how we interact with people who come from distant lands, distant monarchs and kings and, and chiefs and whatnot, they also are supposed to interact with us in accordance with certain rituals. They acknowledge that we're uh, superior, we acknowledge that they're inferior, we show respect to one another, and then they go on their merry way. All right? And each board would be governed by one Manchu and one Han, or one Mongol and one Han. All right? They're always trying to maintain that 50-50 um, uh, balance. Now, the inner provinces, this is what we refer to now as the Han heartland. The inner provinces, usually around 18 in number, okay, referred to in Chinese as Neisheng, you know, literally the inner provinces, or Guanney, within the passes. Um, you have both Han examination officials and Manchus and Mongols being eligible to serve. Okay, this is the only region 
outside of the central government where Han officials can serve. Remember, they cannot serve out on the on the non-Han frontier until 1880, when financial crises and many other changes end up uh, uh, overturning that policy. And oftentimes, I like to point out to my students when they read court cases, these are some of the primary sources that I'd like my students to read. They read the names of the officials who are serving in the Han heartland, um, and they're submitting these memorials to the emperor describing homicides and theft and all these things that are going on in their district. I always like to draw attention to the names of many of these highly placed officials in the Han heartland. Let me read out a few of them to you. Uh, you can immediately recognize, even if you're not familiar with Chinese names, you can immediately recognize these are not Han officials. Here are some representative names from these court cases. Suonomu Jamachu, Agwe, Ishan, Ababu, Jueilo Chishiwu, Iar Hana, Jidanga. These are Chinese transliterations of Mongol and Manchu names. All right, and it shows you the extent to which uh, Manchu peoples are being put into positions of high leadership, not only on the non-Han borderlands, not only in the central government, but also in the 18 inner provinces. Okay, Manchus, this is, affirm this is reverse affirmative action. They are serving far outside of proportion to their actual numbers. Their privilege, their ethnic identity have been intertwined and, you know, made permanent. And no one forgot it all the way up until 1911. Now, county governments, there's 18 provinces. Each province might have 7 to 13 prefectures. Each prefecture might have 5 to 6 counties. This gives you a rough number of maybe 2,000 counties, give or take a couple hundred at any given time. All right, There's one magistrate assigned to each county. That is the extent to which the imperial government of the Qing dynasty reaches down to local society. All right, it appoints one magistrate. And this magistrate may have responsibility for anywhere between 30,000 to a million subjects in his jurisdiction. Okay, obviously the one magistrate cannot rule over this number of people himself, so he hires an informal shadow bureaucracy between 300 to 1,000 of what are known as clerks and runners who remain in the local district. And they know the, the locale, they know the local customs, they know the local languages because the locals are probably speaking a very different language than what is spoken at the imperial court, okay? The magistrate will be rotated around to different counties every year and a half or two years or so. He's a stranger everywhere he goes. And this is a deliberate policy on the part of the imperial government. They don't want any official, any magistrate to ever get too comfortable in any one, in any one location. He often does not speak the local languages of the people that he's ruling over. Okay, he hires many hundreds of clerks and runners to help him keep the paperwork, run court cases, collect taxes, administer justice. He has to do it all. Administer public works projects, repair bridges, all these sorts of things. Okay, and these people are paid out of his own salary or money that he is able to raise on his own. In a couple of episodes, we're going to go into more detail about what's known as the yamen. The yamen was the Chinese word for the local government office in which the magistrate and all of these clerks and runners resided and handled the affairs of daily government. And we're going to go into much more detail about how the yamen actually worked. But here, for now, we're just going to note the many tasks that they had to undertake. 
These people were responsible for you know taxes, for running the courts, for salt sale quotas. Salt was so important in the pre-modern, you know, pre-refrigeration era. You use salt to preserve stuff all the time. Uh, they are in charge of worshiping the local gods, a duty that the magistrate often doesn't want to undertake because he thinks that it's heterodox and that the people are ignorant and stupid and worshiping false gods. But he knows that he has to do it to appease the people, or otherwise, the next time that there's a drought or a flood, they're going to blame him for not worshiping to the local gods. Uh, he has to take care of public works, you know, maintaining roads, rebuilding bridges. He has to maintain good relations with the gentry because he's not getting a whole lot of funds from the central government unless there's a major disaster or famine. The central government isn't going to give him a penny. He has to hire his own staff from his salary. Admittedly, as you'll see in, 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 in the next episode or two, the magistrate's salary is quite high, so he has lots of money where he can hire his own staff. But in order to, you know, maintain the roads and repair a bridge, Beijing's not paying for that. He has to maintain good relations with the local gentry, the local landlords, who are you know, going to be expected to contribute to these sorts of things. Now, obviously, in exchange for their contributions to maintaining public works, they're going to expect favorable treatment as well. So you're going to have sort of this cahoots that the magistrate and local elite society is engaged in, in which they're each scratching the other's back. This is government on the cheap. We don't, we don't really have government on the cheap right now as much as we used to. The government, you know, digs its tentacles into local society really, really far. That wasn't the case in the old days, all right? And when the government is not giving, you know, welfare pensions and all sorts of money and subsidies and whatnot, uh, it's up to the local magistrate to figure out on the fly how to keep a village in good repair by maintaining relations with the local notables and the local wealthy people and giving them favors and, you know, privileges and uh, in exchange for their, their maintaining public order. Okay, he has to compile statistics. He has to maintain gazetteers that reflect the local customs. He has to make maps of the area. And he has to try to always open up new lands for cultivation, which is difficult. Because in the end, he wants to be able to create new settlers, increase the population of, uh, of his district. Because if you increase, increase the population of your district, you get more tax revenue. And of course you want more tax revenue. Now, philanthropic institutions under the Qing dynasty, they often assume the burden of local crises. As I said, Beijing doesn't provide a whole lot. Because this is government on the cheap. Where do philanthropic, philanthropic institutions come from in the pre-modern age? Uh, they were of three types. Buddhist monasteries often undertook the lion's share of local goodwill work. It was, you know, they had a system for this. If you donate money to us in order to pay for coffins for the poor people, so they don't, you know, get shoved into a ditch and then their angry spirit wanders around and torments our society for the next 30 years, donate money to us. We'll give you merit in the Buddhist afterlife. You'll have a better rebirth. You'll be re reborn into a Buddhist heaven. And in exchange, we'll use that money, or at least part of it, uh, to undertake philanthropic work, charity work. The Confucian landed elites, as we already noted, the local landlords, the gentry, um, they oftentimes will be called upon uh, to give money to beggars, to open up, uh, you know, to um, uh, have sort of like a soup kitchen and whatnot and feed the local people sometimes. You were expected to do a lot more for the local populace if you were a rich man. Okay. And then oftentimes there would be sort of a patriotic appeal to anyone from a certain village or town who later became famous or a big official. Uh, sort of like these alumni organizations for universities in which they would maintain contacts with their home village and be encouraged to donate money whenever it was necessary, uh, you know, to, to, again, rebuild a bridge, uh, alleviate famine or whatnot. And in response, maybe they'll erect a really handsome stele 
uh, lauding your merits, you know, put up something, a shrine or whatnot to show what a great hometown hero you were. All right. Um, let's see here. We also need to understand the law of avoidance, which I've referred to before in previous episodes. The law of avoidance, known in Chinese as Huibi. This was the law that made sure that no magistrate could ever serve within their native province that they grew up in or within 500, mi- 500 li, that's a Chinese unit of measurement, maybe two to 300 miles of their hometown, just in case their hometown happened to be on the edge of their home, uh, native province and therefore they might technically be able to serve in a neighboring province um, and yet still be very close geographically to their hometown. Okay, you, you, These were stipulations to make sure that you couldn't collude with your own base of support and networks and connections that you were assumed to have in your native province. You also, as I mentioned before, were rotated every one and a half years at the county level, every three years for the uh, uh, governor level. This is a very sophisticated bureaucracy. All right, and it's one that had been perfected by southern Han states, uh, but is also going to be adopted as one element of a northern hybrid state like the Qing dynasty are overseen. The magistrates at the county level are overseen by governors, and governors in turn are overseen by half as many governor generals who uh, rule, who you know, uh, 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 assume responsibility for overseeing two provinces, whereas a governor oversees one province. The governor generals, of which there's only going to be you know eight to ten or so, uh, they have a right of what was known as a secret memorial system, zhouzhe in Chinese, in which they were allowed to have a secret means of communication uh, directly with the emperor himself without any sort of intermediaries whatsoever. All right, so this was a very uh, 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 exalted privilege, and the emperor, I think it was instituted under the Yongzheng emperor in, in the 1720s. He wanted to have a way to sort of cut through all the, the bureaucratic red tape and have direct communication with his officials in the field, the highly placed uh, governor general officials in the field, and so he gave them the right of this secret memorial system in which the emperor could learn about local affairs without having it filtered all the way through all these intermediaries and other officials who, in the end, the emperor assumed were trying to blind him to what was actually going down on the ground. And then finally, I referred to the outer dependencies, which we already covered. All right, uh, you know, only Manchus and Mongols are serving here. The only Han who are in these areas are exiled Han who are being punished or temporary travelers. Um, and of course, the inner provinces and the outer dependencies are brought together by the Xiexiang, the shared funds. Now, one of the last questions that I want to uh, 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 address here. Um, what happened to the Manchus? Where did they go? You're not going to bump into a Manchu today. It's very unlikely. Okay, and yet they played such an outsized role on the East Asian world stage. What happened to the Manchus? Well, by the end of the 19th century, they are pretty much linguistically assimilated to, you know, northern Chinese as spoken in Beijing. Yes, it's a curious inflection of northern standard Mandarin Chinese, uh, but nonetheless, that is what they speak, and it's understandable by other people, even if they're still, you know, even if other people can actually tell, oh, you're a Manchu the way you're speaking Chinese, you can still understand it. Okay, they are linguistically assimilated by the late 19th century, but of course, as I mentioned before, they retain different customs, they retain their own unique historical memory, their dress, their institutional privileges, okay? Most of those who are in the banners, they're all Manchus, Mongols, and those northern Han who joined the conquest early are in the banner system, 
uh, required to live in spatially segregated garrisons in different parts of the state. They have uh, state support. They have state subsidies. All right, pensions and whatnot, because they don't want them to go out into the regular Han city and beg or work for a living and then be assimilated. Everyone in the, ban- in, in the banners, as a result, had long become impoverished and relied on the state for support, at least after the final conquest of the Northwest in the 1760s. Once there's no more lands to conquer, uh, you know, the Manchus sort of retrench and uh, go back to their garrisons and they become parasites. They become economic parasites and a major burden on the state. But the state is going to assume this burden enthusiastically for the sake of a segregated Manchu identity. They're going to say, you're kind of worthless. You no longer really know how to shoot a bow and arrow from a horseback. Um, But nonetheless, we still want you to be segregated and identify as a Manchu, even if you're speaking Chinese and you can't really do any of the things that we once took pride in as Manchus. Okay, and if it costs us a lot of money to support you guys on welfare uh, for the sake of, you know, maintaining a, a distinct Manchu identity, well, then so be it. After 1895... After the loss to the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War, which takes place in a dispute over who has more influence on the Korean Peninsula, you will start to see this anti-Manchuism resurface in unique combination with what we might think of as social Darwinist ideas. There had always been a latent undercurrent of anti-Manchuism. Okay, Southern, Southern Han states usually equated Han with Huaxia. Northern hybrid states never did that. But the southern Han states would openly denigrate northern zone nomadic peoples as barbarians. Now, they're conquered by, the, by, 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 by these so-called barbarians, and the barbarians then refuse to let the subject population refer to them as barbarians anymore. But it never really goes away. And there's always some people, you know, rebels, for instance, in the south, who are willing to revive the discourse of, you know, barbarian nomadic peoples when it's convenient to do so. And the Manchus were very sensitive to this. They were very sensitive to anyone who would raise the, the, you know, even the faintest suggestion that the Manchus were barbarians. Because they knew that was the first step to rebellion. Well, after 1895, when you start to get an acute sense of crisis in the late Qing state, that were really falling behind not just the West, but now Japan, who we formerly looked down upon, people start to look for a scapegoat. And social Darwinist ideas are now in vogue in the West and have entered China. Social Darwinist idea holds that there are distinct races that have evolved over time, and that the interaction of these races is sort of a survival of the fittest. All right, some races are more vigorous and better and uh, uh, are, are able to adapt than other races, just like in the, nat- in, in the natural world. And the ones that emerge on top are the fittest. They deserve to survive. And no one, no, no one subscribes to this, or well, at least no respectable scholar <laughs> subscribes to this anymore. I'm sure it's still out there on you know, the fringes, and sometimes it gets in political discourse and whatnot. Uh, but this is not a respectable theory anymore among people who are actually, you know, educated. <laughs> um, but regardless, this became a popular way to describe what happened in China. How did we come out on the short end of the stick of the Great Divergence when we 
were the most civilized people on earth, the most glorious people on earth for 2,000 years with no peer whatsoever? How in the world did we end up in such a debased position? Who's to blame? Well, there was a tradition sometimes of, of equating Han with Hua Xia. They said that must be the problem. The problem is that the Chinese are being ruled over by a barbarian people, the Manchus, and the Manchus are unfit to rule. They can't adapt, and they are responsible for the stagnation of China. It's not our fault, it's theirs. Classic scapegoating of an ethnic minority. Yes, this is a privileged minority, but it's the exact same dynamic. Okay, and they said the Manchus are what's holding us back. They're a backward inferior race that somehow, this wasn't really explored in detail, somehow they held the culturally superior Han in check. That, that, that warlike masculinism was no longer a positive thing. That was a negative thing. You know, they did that somehow and brought all of China down with us. This is a view that's out there today. Um, you know, this is why China had such a, uh, you know, a difficult time in the past 150 years and things got so bad. It's because of those Manchus. The Manchus brought us down. Before the Manchus came to power, we were on top of the world. We were great. It's those damn Manchus that held us back. Right when we needed to be strongest the most, when the West came, that was the worst time to be conquered by barbarians. But unfortunately, that's the way it was. And we all went down together. It was a big sinking ship, but it was a Manchu sinking ship, not a Chinese sinking ship. This is a common belief used to explain the plight of 20th century China. It was the Manchu's fault. Now, you ask a historian like me, or any historian, not just me, uh, or most historians, um, this is entirely inaccurate, obviously. A Han emperor, if it was the Ming dynasty in power, a Han emperor would have experienced the exact same problems, but his faults, his shortcomings, would not have been racialized the way that the Manchus' shortcomings were racialized. However, I don't want to give you a distorted picture. Even in the 1890s and the, and the first decade of the 1900, the immediate run-up to the 1911 revolution, it's important to recall that only a minority, albeit the loudest minority, only a minority of intellectuals in East Asia explicitly blamed the Manchus for the problems of China. That was just one of several explanations of what went wrong. Only one of the explanations. Many people said, no, 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 it's not the Manchus' fault. It's all of our faults, or it's our political system's fault. Maybe we need a constitutional monarchy. Maybe democracy is the way. You know, this, maybe we, you know, there's many other things that were raised up as possible solutions that had nothing to do with ethnicity or race. But those who talked about race and social Darwinism and the Manchus were by far the shrillest and the loudest, and they have dominated the discourse and so many people actually think that's actually one of the main causes of the 1911 revolution or the, the, the Han population rising up to overthrow their alien oppressors. It's a bunch of bullshit. There's no alien oppressors. Alien rule, so-called alien rule, was you know the norm more than half the time in so-called Chinese history. Right, there's nothing strange about that at all. What is strange is what happened in the 20th century, actually. Never before in 2,000 years of imperial Chinese history, never 
did we see a state dominated by Han. Totally dominated by Han, with almost no other minorities in high position of power whatsoever. Never did we see a state like that rule over huge non-Han populations like Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. That had never happened before. It was always under a northern hybrid state. So what's weird and new and novel is the inversion of this process in the 20th century, whereas once it was always non-Han, numerically small, northern zone nomadic peoples who ruled over Han and non-Han together for the first time ever after 1911. You actually got Han ruling over a hugely diverse empire that normally only northern hybrid states had once ruled over. And so the Han now, in the, in the 20th century, have had to learn and adapt to ruling over a multi-ethnic empire that there are not very many historical precedents for over the past 2,000 years. So at least not precedents that involve the Han at the top of the pyramid of power. And they've done very similar things that the Manchus and the Mongols before them had done. Affirmative action policies, spatial segregation, all these things. I'm not going to get into them now because we have many different episodes that, that, that will treat that later on. But nonetheless, it's the Han who have now ruled over a so-called northern hybrid state for the past hundred years. And that's the first hundred years they've ever had to do that. That's what's new <laughs> about the 20th century. So what happened to the Manchus after the 1911 war, civil war, the, the revolution? It took many, many months of uh, uh, battles between northern loyalist forces and southern revolutionary forces, and there was no decisive victory. Eventually, it was a negotiation. A negotiation between a powerful northern warlord, uh, nor northern general known as Yuan Shikai, who was able to maneuver himself into a favorable negotiating position and convinced both sides that they would never win the civil war. And he himself played a very instrumental role in making sure that neither side could prevail in this civil war. And eventually, they agreed to go to the, to, to, to the negotiating table. Yuan Shikai scared the Manchu court into believing that they would all be massacred if they lost the war, and that they, were, they could very well lose the war, that they agreed to abdicate. But they abdicated under quite favorable circumstances. The Manchu court, in exchange for voluntary abdication, was able to negotiate for bodily safety, you know, the safety, uh, you know, free from physical harm. They wouldn't be persecuted. For, they had political immunity. They couldn't be brought to trial for any of these so-called crimes. They would be able to retain the wealth of their clan. The, the, the uh, ruling clan was known as the Azingyoro clan. And they would continue to be, able to, to be able to reside in the Forbidden City. Not only that, they would continue to uh, uh, receive a generous annual pension. Where the state, the new Republican state would support them as long as they could. This is a pretty sweet deal. Now, it lasts and fits and start. They don't get all of the pension every single year, but nonetheless, they are allowed to reside in the Forbidden City and they get annual state subsidies of one form or another until 1924. A full, thir a, a full 13 years after the revolution, uh, they're able to subsist under what are known as the Articles of Favorable Treatment. Now, this is just for the Manchus and the central government. The Manchus outside of the Forbidden City are not so fortunate. There were ethnic pogroms in Manchu garrisons, you know, scarcely veiled genocide. Manchu garrisons, again, easily identified. You want to go kill a Manchu, go to the Manchu garrison uh, and find people who are dressed a certain way, talk a certain way. We should easily identify who they are. And they were massacred by the thousands. It was very bloody. 
Okay, there was widespread discrimination against Manchus after 1911, which led to a lot of people who formerly proudly identified as Manchus uh, disguising their Manchu identity just to survive. And so for you know, the first 50 years of the 20th century, the Manchus within you know, the Han heartland kind of disappeared. Not because they disappeared, but because someone made a decision they collectively made a decision that we're not Manchu anymore. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Remember I was talking about uh, race and ethnicity are a situational state of mind? The Manchus said, you know what? We're not going to act like Manchus anymore because it's dangerous to be a Manchu. Thus, we are not Manchus. And voila, they were not Manchus anymore. That was it. But that's not all. That's not the end of the story. In the 1920s and 30s, the Japanese will invade Manchuria, which is an English word for the homeland of the Manchus. Not referred to that in Chinese. They refer to it as Dongbei, the, the northeast. The Japanese would conquer Man, uh, Manchuria and set up their own puppet state, and they would call it Manchukuo, the country of the Manchus. And the, and the Japanese in the 1930s, they didn't want to be seen as an imperialist conqueror. They wanted to be seen as a liberator. So they said, we didn't conquer Manchuria. We liberated the homeland of the poor, persecuted Manchu people who are being persecuted by the Chinese. We liberated them from oppressive Chinese rule. And we gave them an independent nation state where they can rule themselves. This is the age of self-determination. Okay, in which you're not allowed just to conquer other countries anymore. You have to disguise your conquest as liberation. We're still living in this age today, by the way. We, the United States didn't invade Iraq. We liberated Iraq from a, you know, an evil dictator who threatened world peace. All right, if you believe that. Uh, we're still living in the age of national determination. That's the cloak. That's the pretext that anyone who engages in a war has to uh, say that their war is inspired by you know, liberation, self-determination, creation of a nation state where we rule ourselves, even if that's a bunch of bullshit in practice. Okay, so the Manchuria, Manchukuo, was advertised by the Japanese as the home of the Manchus. And the last boy emperor of the Qing dynasty who abdicated the throne, I think when he was like three years old, Pui, Aizengioro Pui, they find him as a young adult and they put him on the throne as the emperor of Manchukuo. Now this was a bunch of, you know, really superficial, disingenuous acts by the Japanese. <laughs> you know, there wasn't that many Manchus. It was still an overwhelmingly Han state with about a million Japanese agricultural settlers. Uh, Manchus were still a minority, and Pui had no real power whatsoever. He was a figurehead. But the symbolism was what was important here. There was a decision to revive Manchuus, uh, Manchuism, <laughs> Manchuness, uh, Man Manchu dashness, <laughs> um, and boom, out of the blue, the Manchus existed again even if it still would have been hard to find a Manchu <laughs> in the 1930s, even if you went to Manchukuo. And even those that you could identify, like Pui, didn't really have any real power. Nonetheless, if Japan had been able to negotiate a more favorable end to World War II and it was not unconditional surrender, Manchukuo very well might have survived. Mongolia survived as an independent state that was cut off from the Qing dynasty. The only significant territory lost by the Qing state in the modern Chinese Republic was Mo Outer Mongolia, now known as the Mongolian People's Republic. The Soviet Union had cut that off from China. And because the Soviet Union won World War II, they were able to keep Mongolia apart from the Chinese state. The Japanese did the exact same thing as the Soviets did with Mongolia, but they did it with Manchuria. If Japan had won World War II, or at least not lost 
to the point of unconditional surrender, there's a very real chance Manchukuo might still be around today, and it wouldn't be such a transparent joke that it, that it often is in history courses now. The story is not over yet. After 1949, the communists come to power, and they say, we're enlightened. We're enlightened Chinese. We're going to truly create, you know, the northern hybrid state. Well, they didn't put it in those terms, but that's essentially what they're doing. We rule over a diverse, massive state, and we're going to rule in accordance with the most enlightened policies of, multi of multiculturalism that there are. And they said there's now 56 official nationalities, ethnic groups in China, and they were praised and lauded as, you know, fully equivalent members of the Chinese state. They're trying to give them a reason to want to be a part of a state dominated by the Han. And there's a resurgence in self-identification as Manchus once you no longer run the risk of being killed for saying you're a Manchu. Now it's safe and in some cases cool to be a Manchu. The communists actually recreated some of the privileges that the Manchus once enjoyed. Like many other minorities, they had preferential treatment into universities. It's really hard to get into a Chinese university. It's a little bit easier if you're a minority. So now, hey, I, 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 I can claim I'm a Manchu again, draw some connection to a great-great-grandpa who was in a Manchu garrison, and I'm a Manchu now? That's wonderful. I can get into college easier. I can have more than one kid when they eventually have a one-child policy. There were privileges like that, once again. Okay, and by the 1980s, you actually saw, uh, a, in official census counts, people were willing to identify as Manchu once again. Again, it's a situational state of mind. Now that it's cool to be Manchu, we're okay claiming it. Are these people really Manchu? Can they really trace back their ancestry to a Manchu garrison? Who knows? Sometimes they probably could, sometimes not. Even if they could, there's no guarantee that that original Manchu was 100% pure-blood Manchu. We already saw how that wasn't the case most of the time. The state acknowledges your Manchu. You claim your Manchu. You're 100% Manchu. A situational state of mind. All right, that's enough. That's enough with the Manchus and the Qing Dynasty. We've got our baseline to explore other fascinating issues, and next time it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. We're getting into the serious stuff right off the bat. Okay, we're going to start to delve into the sordid and salacious lives, the untold stories of the ninety percent of the population that didn't know where its next meal was coming from. We're going to begin our analysis by understanding the economic, social, and cultural conditions that led to a diverse range of gender relations that most of us have been raised to regard today as perverse. But they were the norm back then. I'm talking about men with multiple wives, women with multiple husbands. <gasps> Never thought that, huh? Selling of your wife. Wife borrowing. What the hell is wife borrowing? That sounds kinky. We're going to find out what that's about. Adolescent marriage, it's all here. It's all here in the next two episodes, beginning with episode 25, polyandry and polygyny. Look those words up before we watch the episode. Those are, those are big words. And episode 26, prostitution and wife sales. It's going to be interesting. I hope to see you.